Give us enough time to get all your... Sometimes writing a sermon is as much what you leave out as what you keep in. And so if uh, you read the weekly email that we send out, I've already sort of admitted that there are so many different ways I could have gone with this sermon. Uh, it's such a foundational text that speaks to so many issues. Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Uh, I could have followed some lines of thought about subduing the earth and man's being above animals, having dominion. Uh, we could have refuted macroevolution in there. We, we could have uh, spent time on the Bible's discussion of singleness. We'll, we'll maybe hit that a little bit, but we could have had a whole sermon on that. We could have talked about premarital sex, same-sex marriage, uh, the issues of headship versus submission, and we just don't have time. Uh, we could spend weeks and weeks on these eight verses, but we have about 30, 35 minutes, so let's make the most of them. Um, I will give you my thesis statement up front. I, I don't usually do that, but Brian Chapel and some other smart guys said that's should have a thesis statement for your sermons. One thought. How about this? God unites a man and a woman in lifelong marriage because it is the highest ideal, the best thing for them, and it reflects the character of God and his love for his church. Um, I will direct you to a couple places because, I'm again, I'm not going to be able to get to everything. Uh, Dave Kaminsky actually preached on this in, uh, I believe, July of 2004, uh, and he said that a lot of what he used was Family Life Marriage Conference, and if you want to look at his notes, go to the, our church website, potomackills.org, go to the sermon page, and there's a handy little sort by speaker. So Dave has two sermons on there, so it's the older one. So check out his notes. Um, also, uh, Mark Driscoll is a pastor of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, Washington, and uh, I read his sermon to get ready for this, and uh, there's a lot of sermons, a lot of pastors you could read. Mark Driscoll, will, you will not get bored. I'll just say that. You might get offended. You might uh, go a lot of places, but uh, you won't be bored by reading his stuff. So go to uh, Mars Hill Church, October 2004. You can download his sermon if you want it. It really... He preaches for like an hour and a half, so he can hit all kinds of stuff. Um, but let's get into it. I don't even have really an opening story illustration. Let's just go straight to it. Verse 18 through 25 in Genesis 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Yeah, yeah, thanks. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, 
A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So chronologically, the first thing we see in this passage is not the Lord's declaration is not good that a man should be alone, but first, he, God has brought the animals to him in front of Adam to name them. Uh, Brad Stein is a Christian comedian who has a funny routine on this. Um, of course, we know that Adam wasn't speaking English, but bear with me. It's, uh, he says, the reason we have such stupid animal names is because Adam just got tired. And he started with all the creative ones first. You shall be called hippopotamus. And long, interesting names. And 10 hours later, it was down to yak and cow and fly and short ones. So look that up if you want. But there is something interesting going on here, something important that... Adam is going through this exercise of naming the animals because God is teaching Adam how to have dominion over the earth. Uh, Up until now, God has done the naming. If you look back carefully over Genesis 1, you see that he, he called it day, called it night, heaven, earth. God has done the naming. But now God is tasking his earthly ruler to take over. And so as, as Adam is doing this, he's realizing that none of the animals are like him. None of them was created for him. You might love your dog or your cat, but they will never be your equal. You will always be the owner, the master. And so God says, it is not good that the man should be alone. And so certainly God is saying this about Adam, but is, is he saying this about all men? Is it not good that all men should be alone? Well, I'll, I'll go ahead and put myself with Adam. It would not be good if this man was alone. I need my wife in every way. And I'll go ahead and say that for most of the men I know. It would not be good for them to be alone. Um, but we have... Some teaching in the New Testament, we've been adult Sunday school, high school, Sunday school classes have been going through Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 8.38, Paul says this, So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Hmm. So it sounds like Paul is saying marriage, good, singleness, better, much better. So how do we reconcile these ideas? God is saying it's not good for a man to be alone. Well, I really believe that the context of 1 Corinthians is that persecution is coming. And Paul, I don't think, is saying from now on, we're we're saying singleness is superior to marriage. Do not read that into that. I think he's saying for now, it's directly to the Corinthians. For now, if you don't have to get married, it'd probably be best if you waited, if you didn't. Because it's a lot easier to endure persecution when it's just you than if you have a family that you need to protect and provide for. 
And so I don't think that Paul is reversing the Bible's strong emphasis on marriage and family, the call to be fruitful and multiply, which you cannot do by yourself. So I just want to hit that quickly. We don't have a lot of time to spend on it. Um, I could be wrong, but that's how I reconcile those two passages. And I didn't want you thinking in the back of your mind, yeah, marriage is good, but singleness is better. Well, there's a way to talk through those and reconcile that, understand the context. Um, but this is the first time in Genesis where God says that something is not good. And remember, the fall has not happened, so there is no sin. But there is a void. There is a lack of something. And God says, not good. And it's not that God has overlooked his creation and, and made a mistake. Never say that. But I think that God is putting a little drama in here. He's, he's setting Adam up. He's saying, Adam, you cannot take Eve for granted. Because remember how lonely you were before she came along. But he says, this is not good. And then he does something about it. And so he puts Adam to sleep, does a little surgery, winds up with a new, improved version of humanity. <laughs> Human beings 2.0. And uh, so we have the woman. And the Hebrew word for rib is tsela, and it might also be used for side. And there's a good case to be made that it should be a side because uh, it's the same word that's used in Exodus to describe the side of the ark, the side of the tabernacle, the side of the altar. Most translations still leave it as rib because I think it says one of his ribs, but it could be one of his sides. Um, and we'll, we'll come back to that a little bit, but the, the idea is that I think Adam shed blood and that God took part of his side, flesh and blood, because he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. So it's not real cut and dried, but there's an option there, rib or side. But God creates Eve from Adam. And uh, as much as it feels like sometimes, men and women are not from different planets, right? We have that, that book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. But they are from the exact same material from the same person, uh, James Montgomery Boyce said that men and women are different and long live the difference, as the French say, but they are also more alike than anything else in creation. There's a very famous thought that many of you have probably heard. I, could, I tracked it down. I think the oldest I could see was Matthew Henry, um, who said, he put it like this, and you may have heard it different ways, but the woman was made out of, of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. And here is, is probably where it would be appropriate to launch into a, a discussion of headship, um, and submission, feminism versus chauvinism, egalitarianism, complementary, but again, we don't have time for that. So we'll give you a quick summary. 
Husbands are the heads of their houses, the heads of their marriages. Notice I didn't say that every man is over every woman. But wives are their helpers, called to biblical submission, not a distortion of submission, but in the same way that men are called to something much harder than submission, laying down their lives for their wives. Uh, We'll get to Ephesians 5 a little later. But men ultimately have the authority because they also have the responsibility and will answer to God for their marriage and their family. We'll see that in Genesis 3 after the fall. Uh, If you want to study that more, I would direct you to John Piper and Wayne Grudem's Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And as Rich would say, if you don't agree, I love you anyways. So uh, just very quickly, uh, I can't delve into that issue very much, but that would be good, solid, reformed teaching on that issue. Now, Adam's response to Eve. Adam breaks into a song, maybe, poetry, which seems very appropriate. Most songs that men create are probably love songs for a woman. And he says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So he gets to name her as well. Um, Again, I don't think we know what language it was, but in the Hebrew, the word for man is ish. The word for woman is isha. Similar, different. Um, And it's a lot like our English tiger, tigress, even man, woman, add to that. And some commentators draw attention to the very beginning of this phrase. Uh, this at last. And this, that's just one way to do it, but I think it was a little more passionate than that. It was something more like, wow, look at that. Guys, your wives might not admit it or tell you, but they love it when you look at them and say, wow, look at that. So if you haven't done that in a while, it may be time. Verse 24 comes right after that. And there's no quotation marks in the original. So some people say, well, Adam just keeps going. He says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and keeps talking, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. Well, he doesn't have a really concept for mother and father yet. We really believe that this is Moses inserting his narrative. And Moses is commenting and saying he's... Uh, communicating to his audience that there is a great foundation for marriage. Moses is saying, a man shall leave and hold fast because of all that's come before that a man needs a helper fit for him and God provides a woman from him. Um, now, so that, uh, this is the pattern that you are to follow. Jesus quotes this. We read it in the responsive reading. This whole verse 24 in uh, Matthew 19.5. And then Paul quotes it in Ephesians 5.31. So I would say that if Moses, Jesus, and Paul all say the same thing, 
you might want to write it down. You might want to memorize it. You might want to consider it carefully. As Mark Driscoll says there, that's some pretty heavy firepower that you've got there, lining up behind this verse. If one of them says something, you can bank on it. It is truth. If all three of them say it, it's hard to say that it's a minor doctrine or that it's not important. So let's look at this idea of leaving and holding fast, what we often call leaving and cleaving. I remember that... uh, on the drive to college, when my parents dropped my brother, my twin brother and I both went to Baylor University, and they were driving us there for the first welcome week, and uh, they put on this song called Watercolor Ponies by Wayne Watson. Does anybody know, you guys know that song? Baby, what will we do when it comes back to me and you? They look a little less like little boys every day. My parents cried. Bald, as they listened to that song and as they took us to college. And my little brother was leaving the next year. It was sort of empty nest very quickly. It wasn't like they peel one off every few years. But it was an almost immediate empty nest for them. And they took it very hard. And it is painful to watch our children leave. But at some point, that pain is way better than the anxiety, the embarrassment, the disappointment of having that failure to launch son or daughter that won't leave, that won't grow up. And usually our children leave way before they get married and go off into college and careers, but marriage is the ultimate leaving. And leaving does not mean that they stop being your parents. But you are separate from them in every way. You are literally not their dependents on their tax forms anymore. And you are not their dependents emotionally. They are not your authorities. Uh, I mean, they're still your parents. Listen to them. They are godly wisdom. But you now have your own family. And both spouses need to leave to have a healthy marriage because you're starting something new. Now, the the word that the ESV translates as hold fast is devok, which can be also mean cling or cleave to. And that's where we get that cleave, leave and cleave. And it rhymes so it's nice. It's the same word used in Deuteronomy 10.20 for Israel clinging to God. Deuteronomy 10.20 says, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him. And in marriage, it means such strong devotion and attachment in every way, physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, intellectually, clinging, holding fast to your spouse. All of the ways that you relate to other people, primarily, your primary and strongest relationship is now with your spouse. And clinging to your spouse in a way that makes you one flesh, cleaving, holding fast, is sex with one person for the rest of your life. Um, Every time I've taught on 
sex, dating, all those things in, in a youth group context, I always, always start with the idea that sex is God's idea. He created it. He intends it for us to enjoy it. But you have to experience it in the context that he created it for. Lifelong marriage. We experience shame when we go outside of that. And we see that beautiful, the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. We're, I mean, part of that is because the fall hasn't happened. But there is freedom in marriage when two spouses have been pure. And shame is not there. Doesn't mean marriage is perfect. Doesn't mean there aren't problems. But we have this ideal. And we don't have time to explore this real far. But how many ways has Satan used any deviation of this simple formula of a man and a woman leaving their families to start a new family together for the rest of their lives? When we deviate from that, how many ways has Satan used that to wreck people's lives and bring so many of the problems in society it doesn't account for all of them. There's still going to be greed, power, sins of humanity will still be there. But how many problems would be cleared up if there were no single parents, no kids growing up without fathers, no kids growing up angry about their parents' divorces? God gives us this ideal, this high standard, because it is what is best for us. Now, we will always preach grace for those who are divorced, always preach grace to those who have fallen and in other ways wrecked their marriages. And John, John here, his children's church, was a great welcome this morning. You belong here, no matter what your past, whatever your baggage is. And following this ideal doesn't make marriage easy. It's the much harder way but it's where God gives abundant life. Do you see your marriage and other people's marriages as something that God united? Sure, you did your part. You, you courted, you dated, you wooed, you got engaged, you married, you did all of that. But God united you. I give kind of an analogy to childbirth. The husband and the man and woman do their part, and delivery is difficult, very physical, but God ultimately gives birth, gives us a child. So do you see your marriage like that? Because it's very easy to say, well, I chose my spouse, and now I'm not in love anymore. And so it's time to dissolve this thing, right? We don't want to live a lie. And yet, as true as that is, that you chose her, God united you. And a love that is based on feelings will fail eventually. Uh, Don Francisco used to sing a song, Love is not a feeling, but an act of your will. True agape love is selfless love that does what 
what's best for the other person. So if you've fallen out of love, you've got the wrong kind of love. Because you can't fall out of love if you are pursuing a selfless, giving love. You're just admitting you're not very good at it. Matthew 19.6, again, Jesus can say, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now there are biblical reasons for divorce, but we don't have time to get into that discussion. But just to say that lifelong marriage takes courage and conviction. Now, as we see this, We've seen the pattern, the ideal that God sets before us. And it is a beautiful picture. Marriage is a wonderful picture of Christ's relationship with the church. We believe Jesus is glorified whenever we have godly marriages between believers. Because not only are two Christians, two little Christs joined, but there is a cord of three strands with man, woman, and God. God is glorified in that. And we I did allude to Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul spends some good time uh, talking about how our relationships with our spouses reflect Christ's relationship to his church. The husband, like Christ, is called to sacrifice himself in his love for his wife. And the wife is called to respect and follow her husband as the church follows its Lord. And so John Piper makes the comment that part of what makes divorce so horrific in God's eyes is not merely that it involves covenant breaking to the spouse, but that it involves misrepresenting Christ and his covenant. Christ will never leave his wife ever. Now, the history of Israel in the Old Testament is one of an unfaithful wife. The Bible even uses the language of harlotry. Israel was so unfaithful that it sold itself shamelessly to other gods. And the Christian church has a very mixed record as well of faithfulness both as a church and then we as individuals run after other lovers who will not satisfy us. The human heart is an idol factory constantly looking for something to worship besides Christ. But Christ pursues us and brings us back no matter how poorly we act. And in Revelation 19, verse 7, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. On that day, the church will be wearing white, showing that Jesus has taken away all that defiles it. The first marriage of Adam and Eve and every Christian marriage afterwards point towards that final marriage of Christ. I often pray as 
families come down, that they remember the communion, the Lord's Supper points us backwards to Christ's sacrifice. It points us to the present of receiving Christ physically, and it points ahead to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I think here with marriage, we can point back Adam and Eve's first marriage, the ideal. Every marriage since then, your marriage, points ahead to Christ and His bride and the wedding. But even deeper than that, Matthew Henry gave a parallel that I had never thought of. The making of Eve from Adam's side is an analogy. It's a, it's a picture of Christ having his side pierced and the blood and water that flowed down provided for the redemption of his bride, the church. I'd never seen that before. God creates Adam's bride from his side and he creates Christ's bride, the church, out of the redemption from the blood of his side. So how can we apply these verses? What do we do with this as the ideal for our lives? Well, there's as many answers as there are people, and every situation is going to be different. But know that, if I haven't said it strongly before, there is forgiveness and healing for those who have been involved in premarital, extramarital, sex, divorce, all of those things that fall short of thy ideal. You may feel great shame and guilt and hurt, but God's love and God's grace are greater than that. Married folks, please think deeply about whether leaving and cleaving has happened. Ask yourself if you've done that. And then husbands, I would ask you to consider carefully whether you lay down your life for your wife for your family. Wives, consider carefully whether you are a help for your, for your husband. The Bible uses imagery of a, a wife can be a crown or the Proverbs indicate that she can be a cancer. Are you a crown or a cancer? Singles, teens, children, I hope that you will think deeply about the beauty, godliness, and the benefits of lifelong marriage to one person and make decisions that will get you there. Become a person of godly character that, who will attract a godly spouse. And please realize that sex outside of marriage, pornography, will hurt your marriage way more than you think it will. And then for all of us, let's understand that our relationship to Christ is part of the larger picture of the church being the bride of Christ. So we are faithful to him as a body and we are faithful to him as individuals. There is no other lover lover who will give you life and joy, not to mention forgiveness of your sins and eternity besides Jesus Christ. Understand his great love for you. Father God, thank you so much for the book of Genesis that gives us a great foundation in so many different ways as we understand your creating power. And here in this passage, as you joined Adam to Eve and provided them each for each other, and you laid that down as a pattern that we are to follow, 
that men and women come together, leave their families of origin to cling to each other, to hold fast in lifelong marriage where there is joy and not shame. God, teach us to think deeply on these issues, to celebrate the marriages in our congregation and celebrate the marriages around us, to do what we can to encourage faithfulness. Lord, help us to look with a critical, discerning eyes at our own lives and how we have fallen short of that ideal, how our actions are selfish,